You're listening to Global Futures, a podcast series brought to you by the Global Governance Futures Robert Bosch Foundation Multilateral Dialogues. We are a podcast that talks about global politics and how rising powers like China, India, and the like are influencing it. We'll find some of the leading lights from across the world to discuss foreign policy, economics, war and peace, and how the world is changing. In this episode, my colleague Torsten Benner travels to Johannesburg, South Africa to speak with Elizabeth Sidiropoulos, Chief Executive of the South African Institute of International Affairs, and asks, what's next for South Africa after Jacob Zuma, now that Cyril Ramaphosa has taken over as president? A decade ago, South Africa met all the criteria and was on the path towards taking on a hegemonic role in Southern Africa. Economic power, political weight, military might, and some would argue moral authority. But because of an erratic foreign policy, lack of regional acceptance, and continuing corruption scandals, Pretoria is experiencing significant difficulties in delivering good governance and public goods to its citizens. South Africa struggles to play a regional leadership role which its own elites aspire to, making it difficult for the government to assume an important role on the global stage. So, what does the future hold for Africa's rainbow nation? Our guest today has headed the South African Institute of International Affairs since 2005. Earlier in her career, she was a research director at the South African Institute of Race Relations and editor of the highly acclaimed Race Relations Survey, now the South Africa Survey, an annual publication documenting political and constitutional developments and socioeconomic disparities in South Africa. She is an expert on South African politics, covering both foreign and domestic policies, with a strong interest in South-South cooperation, development issues, and the role of emerging powers and global governance. Elizabeth Sidiropoulos, joins my colleague Torsten Benner from Johannesburg. Welcome, Elizabeth, and uh, thank you for joining us on our Global Futures uh, podcast. It's a very interesting time to be in South Africa and Johannesburg here with you. Maybe you can give us a sense uh, of the mood in the country after the recent change in leadership and what, in your view, has led to that change in leadership. Glad to, to be with you, uh, Torsten, and, and thanks for the opportunity. Of course, the, the mood in the country at the moment, I think, is, is one of a sense of uh, possibilities and new hope and a new dawn, I think, is what um, the new president uh, referred to in, in his State of the Nation address. I think um, the tone that has been sent, set by the new president, by Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, since his election barely a week ago, uh, has been one of renewal. It is about addressing what has really been the bane of the country for, for several years around uh, corruption. It's uh, it's about tackling. It's it's about showing responsible government, government that serves the people. The, the term that we use here is batupile, and it's and it's really about almost trying to hark back to a period uh, in you know in the early in the mid 1990s with with President Mandela. Of course, uh, President Ramaphosa was one of the architects of our constitution, and so there's been a lot of that. Uh, nostalgia to some extent. This is not to say that uh, all our problems have now been sorted out, but there certainly uh, creates the, uh, the replacement of President Zuma creates new opportunities for South Africa. 
How much of a free hand uh, do you think President Ramaphosa will have in terms of pursuing his anti-corruption agenda? There are some observers here in the country, such as uh, William Gomeda, who says that the ruling party, the ANC, is still very firmly in the hand of those who are kind of pro-corruption forces. And do you think that's the case? And will the new president be able to break that stranglehold of that faction? I think it is true to say that if we look at the election results of the ANC conference in December last year, the President Ramaphosa's uh, election was pretty close. It was nothing like uh, President uh, Zuma's election in 2007, uh, where he got pretty much two-thirds of the vote for the party presidency. And and certainly a couple of the figures in the senior, in what we call the top six of the ANC, are regarded uh, still as, as big Zuma supporters or and who have been implicated or whose families have been implicated in some of the state, state capture allegations. So it is clear that he has to tread a very... And I think he's very aware of it, that he has to tread a very careful uh, or a very fine line. There are still people in the National Executive Committee of the ANC who I think uh, don't see uh, some of the uh, initiatives that the president wishes to undertake as ones that would serve their particular interests. And clearly, as any politician knows, you have to balance what you want to do and would want to do if you had a completely you know, uh, carte blanche with uh, the very very real party political um, dynamics. So it's clear that there will have to be some trade-offs. There will have to be some compromises. Fundamentally, and this is the point that I think is important to stress and that William Gomeda has made, is that the ANC itself uh, has to re-energize it's- itself and uh, you know give birth to a a cleaner, fresher ANC um, that simply replacing one president with another is not the is not the panacea. But that clearly is not something that can be done overnight, and it, it's something that has to be done very carefully to make sure that in the process of of rejuvenation, you're not actually wiping out uh, or you're undermining your own uh, position. And within this uh, longer-term rejuvenation agenda, in terms of immediate priorities, policies on economic and political change that you would uh, recommend, what would be two or three policies that are of immediate importance that would make a difference in your view? The first one that we, uh, you know, if you if you talk to ordinary people in the streets might say, well, this is not necessarily going to have an immediate impact on me, but it will have an immediate impact on the way in which I think, uh, you know, people with money, investors and credit rating agencies will sort of consider as, as setting off on a new path is really addressing state-owned enterprises and their boards and their, and their senior management. He has already started doing that with our Electricity uh, Supply Commission, ESCOM, because that's where a, a lot of the state capture has been happening. And so you need to set these rights right because government guarantees to many of these state-owned enterprises affect our overall debt, uh, they affect our, our fiscal space. Uh, and so if, uh, addressing that, uh, which is not going to be also solved overnight, the, fin- the balance sheet, but addressing that will certainly create uh, both a degree of certainty and confidence that uh, there is a desire to root out corruption, but also sort of over the next couple of years creates greater fiscal space for the government. Then there are some really pressing but structural problems. The biggest of these is poverty and unemployment and inequality. And, you know, the only thing you can do there is really create an enabling environment 
for small and medium enterprises to do what they want to do. And certainly we're a highly regulated, in many respects, a highly regulated uh, economy in the areas uh, in terms of the red tape for small companies, and he's committed to doing that. And then the other, the other point, which is a long-term exercise, is the issue of education and skills, and really gearing up our young people for the, for the fourth industrial revolution, which we have, I think, failed in the last two decades. I'd like to now connect the domestic agenda and situation to South Africa's foreign policy role. You mentioned the Mandela years, uh, which were years of hope uh, that South Africa would not only play a regional leadership role, but also be a political and moral leader on global issues in multilateral affairs. To what degree do you think the recent political troubles have hampered uh, South Africa reaching its uh, full potential over the past years? Well, if we work on the assumption that uh, your domestic polity, your domestic well-being affects uh, and plays a role in how you act and how you're perceived as a foreign policy uh, actor, clearly there is, uh, you know, what uh, what has happened in South Africa over the last uh, few years has not st stood us in good stead. There have been cases where one is in a in a meeting or a discussion around conflict resolution on the continent. And, and South Africans are making observations and making inputs, and other Africans are saying, well, actually, you guys haven't done so well on this count either. So one of the points that uh, South Africa brought in 1994 and, and in, in the immediate period after that uh, to the debates on Africa was a sense of standing the moral high ground, partly because of our own uh, transition and how we, uh, how we transitioned from an apartheid to a democratic state and our constitution and governments of national unity, etc. Etc. And that's what is your, you know, that, that creates your street cred, um, so to speak. And I think we've lost a lot of that because of our own domestic uh, troubles and because our mind has also not been focused uh, really uh, on, on the continent because it's been absorbed internally. I think there have also been consequences for the way in which we have engaged on the continent. We have continued to engage uh, during the Zuma years, but I'm not quite sure that it, I don't think it has been as effective or that we've played the role that we uh, played sort of in the Mandela and the Mbeki years. In your own work, you have advocated a greater focus of South Africa in its regional and uh, global activities. Now, if you had to advise on what that focus should uh, zoom in on in, in the coming years, making use of this potential new dawn uh, domestically that would also enable South Africa to kind of live up to its potential in its regional and global role, what would you recommend? The, the first uh, one, which is about linking the domestic priorities to our foreign priorities, is the importance of uh, being able to leverage uh, strong uh, economic partnerships that we have with both the global south, and here particularly China, of course, is, 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 plays an important role, but also with actors in, in, in Europe and North America, to be able to bring investment, to create jobs, to boost our trade, to grow our manufacturing production and so on. That, that's important. So that's some of the economic diplomacy dimensions, which we have spoken about also under the Zuma administration, but we just weren't really able to to get up and running in the way that we should have. And that also speaks to our foreign service, the ability to, to have those kinds of economic and commercial skills. That would be very important. Secondly, You know, what happens domestically and recapturing some of that moral ground domestically also then helps you in the way in which others perceive you when you're in global fora, whether you're in global or regional fora, so in the African Union or indeed at the UN or the WTO um, or, the, or the Human Rights, uh, Human Rights Council. 
But also very critically, we must never forget that while we are playing with the BRICS and with China, we are in comparison a middle ranking power. And the, the way in which middle ranking powers exert influence is through their ideas, it's through their policy innovations in the global, in the global arena. And we, we need to recapture some of that spirit and some of the way in which, um, you know, we, we were able to make important contributions to pushing through, whether it was security agreements, whether it was, you know, I think back to nuclear non-proliferation or to landmines um, or to issues around trade. I think we can play a, a very important role in those global debates without having the punch that a, that a big power has. But we need to be great idea innovators. And I think... We've, we've got people who can do that, and we, it's not that we haven't been doing it in the last few years, but I think we can certainly uh, do much more under a reinvigorated uh, political leadership. You, you mentioned ideas or norm entrepreneurship uh, that South Africa could and should engage in more strongly. To what degree do you think in this ideas or norms entrepreneurship, the identity of South Africa as a democracy makes a difference? I mean, you have the IPSA forum, for example, that brings uh, together kind of rising uh, democracies, India, Brazil and uh, South Africa. The BRICS forum is much more mixed uh, in terms of do domestic governments. You have two uh, authoritarian countries, uh, which are the biggest uh, BRICS members. To what degree do you think in terms of the norms that South Africa or the idea South Africa would be pushing, its identity as a democracy uh, makes a difference? I, I think it should make the difference. Um, uh, we've lost some of that uh, luster over the last uh, few years, but it is crucial not only in the way in which we advocate for a fairer, more equitable global system of countries, um, but it is also important because what South Africans fought for and got in 1994 was about dignified life for all. It was about economic and political rights. We're still working on the economic empowerment uh, in South Africa, but, but those were key to what South Africa is and, and should continue to be. And I think we, in, in, in some of the debates around human rights, we sometimes focus too much on, on the issue of double standards, which many in the North practice, which I think is important. We, we should continue to do that. Uh, the less double standards for all of us, the better we will be. But sometimes we, we object to things because of that, rather than because of the content of what we're discussing, uh, whether it is on civil society rights or internet governance um, and so on. So I'm hoping for a much more nuanced reflection on some of these, uh, although I'm also very much aware that power politics sometimes is the determinant in the positions we take and that we're also, uh, we're also responding to the way other countries, uh, whether in the north or in the south, uh, tackle uh, some of these human rights issues and the way in which they respond to issues that we put on the table. So for South Africa, for example, socioeconomic uh, rights are very important. And if you're talking about human rights for people, it's not just about your right to stand on a box and uh, proclaim your freedom of speech, but it's also about being able to have a roof over your head uh, and, and food on your table and so on. And we shouldn't underestimate and uh, regard these rights as lesser rights than those on political. And that's certainly one of the positions that South Africa has always advocated for. Um, but it is, it is finding that nuance in the way in which we engage in some of these global debates. China is an important partner for South Africa, and it's increasingly obvious that the China Belt and Road Initiative is in competition with uh, the Asia-Africa Growth Corridor that uh, India and Japan are advocating. Where does South Africa 
come out? Uh, does it want to get the best of both or does it pick and choose or how is this being seen here? Um, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's, nothing is mutually exclusive. <laughs> Clearly, certainly in, in, in the first uh, discussions and iterations of the Belt and, and, and Road, the, the routing, the marine, uh, the maritime dimension of the Silken Road, of course, sort of focused more on, on East Africa. Uh, subsequently, China has, of course, made this a much more global Uh, initiative and you know some would argue a much more inclusive initiative so you had for example even Argentina's head of state I think or senior government official attend um, the Belt and Road Summit in, in May last year. I think South Africa sees the the economic opportunities and the connectivity opportunities that are presented by the Belt and Road idea vision extremely appealing because they feed into uh, many of the initiatives around infrastructure that South Africa and regional economic communities and the African Union have uh, prioritized. It, the, the fact that there is additional financing uh, opportunity through the Belt and Road for, for many of these projects, I think, is regarded as an advantage. Clearly, there is a lot that we in Africa have to do. Uh, there are lots of projects on the table. Uh, many of them still have to be made and shown to be bankable. And, and that ties up also with how you diversify your economies and link up in terms of regional value chains and so on and so forth. But certainly, uh, from that perspective, from the economic perspective of the Belt and Road, um, I think it is seen in, in, a, in a very positive light, linking up with Agenda 2063 of the AU and, 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 and similar initiatives. Clearly, we also need to go into this with our eyes open and also see this, both some of the potential challenges that might be created, as well as the broader geopolitical chessboard that I think the Belt and Road is, is very much uh, part of. You know, initiatives like the Indian, uh, Japanese, um, Asia-Africa uh, growth corridor have has a different uh, certain dimensions which place different emphasis and includes capacity building, institutional building, and so on and so forth. And certainly from, from our perspective, these, these can complement each other. But I think we have to be very aware of the fact that many of these initiatives also carry other elements to them which are about uh, geopolitical um, advancement and you know what we don't want is to get caught up in or should avoid getting caught up in Eurasian great power politics. Exactly and uh, not, not only the geopolitical challenges or potential trappings but also it's being discussed in South Africa that of course China's economic presence on the continent is in competition with some of the South African businesses uh, that have traditionally controlled much of business on the on the continent and have played a very important role to what degree that competition issue do you think uh, will inform uh, South African policy vis-a-vis -vis China I think you know it's it's always been part of the discussions including for example not only in terms of our companies in the rest of the continent but also the extent to which a more competitive Chinese economy outcompetes some of our own manufacturing and that's been on the table it's been part of the discussions for many years and both uh, former presidents Mbeki and Azuma have actually put on the table to the Chinese that you know the relationship needs to be more than a sort of the traditional global north south Uh, where we're exporting raw materials and importing uh, finished products. You know, competing with, with, with Chinese companies on the continent is, is similar to competing with, you know, whether it's Indian or German or, or, or British or French companies or American, indeed, on the continent. We know that in, in, in many areas, particularly around construction, uh, Chinese have sort of outcompeted everybody. I think it's, it's part of the business environment from, from uh, you know, South African companies' p perspective. 
it is about making clearer in, in many instances what the value add is if you're going with this or with that company in terms of quality. I think the Chinese are also increasingly aware of some of the criticism of, uh, of their engagement on the continent and are also looking to, to modify that and to become much more uh, um, sort of quality uh, focused. But, you know, this is, um, this is business. I don't think it's going to negatively uh, impact on, on, on the political relationship that we have. I think uh, South Africa has very strong ties with China. There may be issues that in, in a revitalized business government, South African business, South African government engagement, there might be issues that are uh, put on the table much more uh, forcefully, perhaps, or, you know, in, in a manner that actually forces some, uh, some further discussion where there might be anti-competitive uh, behavior and so on and so forth. But um, I think China is, you know, after the EU, our uh, a very important trading partner. And I think that obviously in the current context informs much of the thinking. South Africa this year hosts the summit of the BRICS countries, Brazil, South Africa, India, China, and uh, Russia in late July. What do you think uh, the rationale of BRICS is these days going forward? And what should South Africa be trying to get out of the BRICS as an institution? The, the BRICS has, um, has, of course, evolved from what Jim O'Neill sort of bunched together uh, as a group of important emerging economies, and I think is much more than, uh, than a grouping around econ about economies and whether these are the biggest players in the globe. Um, and certainly South Africa is a, is a much smaller player compared to the other four. What I think is important to recognize is the extent to which the BRICS grouping has both institutionalized and developed uh, and deepened cooperative frameworks. So in terms of institutionalizing, of course, it's still, BRICS still remains an informal grouping. I mean, there isn't a secretariat or anything like that. But it has created, of course, the New Development Bank, you know, commonly known as the BRICS uh, Bank, which has already started giving out loans on, on infrastructure and sustainable energy um, projects. It has set up the contingency reserve arrangement for balance of payment uh, shortfalls, which is of course linked to the to the IMF, but nevertheless is so. So you have you have these institutions, and you know it's it's always much more difficult to divorce when you have you know children than <laughs> when you don't, and and so that's that's part of uh, the cement that that has evolved in terms of holding the bricks together. And then on the on on the other side, of course, since um, since the very first summit in two thousand and nine, the degree to which working groups on on a variety of issues across government, as well as second track, have mushroomed, I think uh, shouldn't be underestimated, both in terms of the, the sharing of knowledge and experiences and improving or working on, on joint projects to improve particular policy interventions, or indeed in terms of political cooperation. And I think that's important in terms of global security issues. And I think we've seen that on themes like um, Syria. We've seen it on Ukraine, not or the Crimea rather, uh, not in terms of that they have a common approach, but that BRICS countries, if you just go back to the, uh, to the UN General Assembly uh, vote on the Crimea in 2014, didn't vote against Russia, they abstained. Uh, and then the position on, on Ukraine and Crimea has pretty much been uh, about sort of 
in support of what Russia has argued. In Syria, they've also been extremely careful. South Africa, certainly when it served on the UN Security Council at the time in 2011, 2012, was really opposed to going down the route of Libya uh, and certainly echoed some of the other members in the BRICS. And there's been a great deal more cooperation on these issues and engagement at the UN General Assembly on the sidelines and in other fora in the G20 than in the past. And I think you, we need to recognize it, that that is an important development. But how would you judge that uh, development? You mentioned both the stance on, on Syria and uh, on Ukraine, Crimea. If you square that uh, with what we talked about, the identity of South Africa as a liberal democracy, as a champion of uh, human security, uh, a critic could say basically what is South Africa is engaging in is giving cover to China and Russia for the unconditional exercise of sovereignty uh, that they're making at the expense of uh, human security in return for privileged access to the president of China, which of course has you know enormous benefits in terms of economic relations and general political relations. How, how would you square, square this? Because both, I mean, it's not that Uh, other countries have been advocating a very successful line on, on Syria, but the general policy is an abysmal failure in terms of human security and uh, Crimea doesn't set exactly an appealing uh, example, especially the violation of the Budapest Memorandum should be of concern from any country that uh, actually champions uh, multilateralism. How do you square that? I think a, a couple of points that are important, uh, in, certainly in the way in which South African policy or the areas that South African policy has focused on in, in recent years. Sovereignty has always been important. Uh, and sovereignty uh, and respect for sovereignty has been in, important in the context of, uh, you know, the story of countries that have decolonized uh, and the fact that particularly former colonial powers, you know, breaching sovereignty were, was about really advancing their particular interests. So in the South, sovereignty obviously is important. It, I think it has been abused. I think that point must be made. And certainly in the context of the attempt over the 1990s, 2000s to develop a normative framework around, you know, linked also to responsibility to protect and so on and so forth. Um, but sovereignty has been, has been important and I think has been re-emphasized quite significantly in the last few years in South Africa because part of what they saw playing out, and perhaps Libya here stands out as a, as a preeminent example, is the use of certain global norm, normative frameworks that have emerged and which South Africa supported to advance particular national interests of powerful countries. And I think Libya, for me, really was a turning point for South Africa in that regard. It voted for the resolution, 1973, and, uh, and then was sort of, in effect, barred from engaging with um, uh, the various parties, and really the AU was not part of much of the regional engagement with the competing parties in, in Libya. And so in, in Syria, I think... The response was really uh, almost a response, a knee-jerk reaction to the experience in Libya, which, quite frankly, I think neither Britain nor France bedecked themselves in glory. Quite frankly, in Syria, I don't think there are any any right solutions. I don't think any of the countries have have solutions. It is it is seen in that context that you go in there, you cause, you know, you want to intervene, you intervene, then you leave, and you leave behind you mayhem, as we've seen in the Sahel. I mean, it's been precipitated by 2011. In the case of Ukraine, of course, some of that narrative is there as well. It's about seeing the actions of, of the West, and particularly the US in this case, as stoking an uprising. Uh, the Maidan uh, demonstrations were seen. In, so that's, which is, I know, the position, the narrative of, of Russia. But, you know, it, it feeds into the, the role that external actors play in supporting civil society organizations, 
that then create problems for the state. And particularly, I think, under the previous administration in South Africa, the state as, as an important actor and protection of the state, sometimes over human security, I think re-entered the narrative, certainly in South Africa. Final question would look fast forward to 2030, because you can see a scenario where not only Russia and China are asserting their rights uh, that you've seen, uh, but also the US is doing it not necessarily under the cover of global norms, but uh, under the cover of naked self-interest. America first doesn't need the responsibility to protect to kind of uh, hide behind. Uh, it's just the naked assertion of interest, self-interest of great powers. And that's one scenario of uh, a future world where smaller middle powers like South Africa are being caught in between the naked self-assertion of uh, great power interests. So how do you see South Africa navigating these kind of troubled, uh, troubled borders in the coming 10 years? And how can South Africa make the most uh, out of this possible future if it's moving in that direction? I think one of the most important uh, elements that as we move into a new administration South Africa needs to consider is the fact that the world is a much more complex world than it was 40 years ago, that the old north-south or east-west divisions no longer hold, that common interests are not necessarily only determined by the localities or the ideological localities of, of partners, and that Uh, in this new world where you have an America first and an increasing uh, national interest driven foreign policy of a number of states, that the importance of being able to cooperate at an international level, our global governance, which South Africa still regards as a very important principle of its foreign policy, can happen by cooperating sincerely and deeply with states that share similar values across what might potentially be seen as historical divides. And for me, that really speaks to both the governing party in South Africa and, and the government actually moving away, but particularly the documentation of the, of the governing party, moving away from that kind of 1960s, 1970s, sort of frame of reference. Some of it is relevant, still, sure. Some of it, you know, the world is still... Not fair. Uh, the world is still characterized by different powers, different countries having uh, more or less power. But that the countries that can actually, that we can, as small, medium-sized, uh, middle powers, make a difference, provided we are working together, whether it is, you know, with countries in the north who share similar values and, uh, and are willing to work in a particular way in multilateral environments or with countries in the south. And I think it's breaking that mindset that uh, for me is, is going to be so critical going forward. Thank you, Elizabeth. I think you'll be at the forefront of kind of challenging the orthodoxy and advocating for such an unconventional approach here in South Africa. And I think you will find a lot of willing partners in these kind of medium-sized uh, powers that share similar values and interests in, in this uh, emerging geopolitical great power order. We are very happy to have had you on our Global Futures podcast. Thank you very much for making the That's time. That's a great pleasure. Always great to chat to you. This edition of Global Futures was presented by my colleague Torsten Benner and produced by Sonia Sugrubova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest was Elizabeth Sidiropoulos. The Global Governance Futures Program brings together exceptional young professionals to look ahead 10 years and think of ways to better address global challenges. 
for a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.